Well, good morning, everyone. Excuse me while I put a cough drop in my mouth. Hopefully, I won't like choke on it mid-sentence some point. Somebody will save me, I'm sure. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's going to be just a moment before we get there. Now, we've been known to do things kind of radically around here, and this Sunday uh, it's going to be no different, um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to begin with a very simple question today. Can you have a resurrection without a death? I see a couple people shaking their heads, no, nobody seems really confident. No, you can't have a resurrection without a death. For something to be resurrected, it must be what? Dead. Very simple thing. Here's another question for you. What happened on Passover? Somebody tell me what happened on Passover. The death angel, all right. And what happened years later on Passover? The crucifixion. Jesus died on Passover. We all agree? All right. What happened on what the Bible calls first fruits, what most call Easter, and what many of us call Resurrection Day? Christ rose from the dead. Nobody wants to answer my questions. They're not trick questions. It's pretty straightforward, pretty easy. On Resurrection Day, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, uh, if somebody's got their phone, would you open it up and look on your calendar for me? And somebody tell me what day March 31st is. Easter. Don't even have to look. Can somebody then look in April and tell me what April 22nd is? Passover. So Easter is March 31st, but Passover is April 22nd. How can you celebrate the resurrection before the death? Anybody think there's a problem with our calendar? If you would, Deuteronomy 16, stand with me as we read from God's word. Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 1. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You may be seated. And so here in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord commands Israel to observe, or more accurately in the Hebrew, to guard, protect, or keep the month of spring, Aviv. Aviv itself means spring. Now this may sound a bit strange. After all, how do you guard a season or protect a season? 
I mean, God is the one who causes the sun to shine and the earth to move around the sun. He causes the seasons to change. He brings the sunshine. He brings the rain. He is the one that causes the plants and the grass to grow in the spring. So what this commandment meant was that Israel was to ensure that the Passover is to be kept at the right time of the year. Exodus 23.15 says that Aviv, this month, um, it was later called Nisan, is an appointed time. Anybody ever hear of appointed times in the Bible? They are special days, special seasons that God has anointed. He has appointed for special things. And Israel was told multiple times to keep the Passover in the month of Aviv. And that is where my question came in. Can you have a resurrection without a death? No, you cannot. So how is it that resurrection day can occur before Passover? Well, it really can't. You must have the death before you have a resurrection. It's as obvious as the nose on your face. Again, you can't have a resurrection without a death, so how can you celebrate the resurrection before the death? How did our calendar get so messed up that we're celebrating the resurrection before the death of Yeshua? And more importantly, does it really matter? Now, how many of you understand we come in here today to celebrate the death and resurrection of Yeshua Jesus? We do that every week. There is not a day that goes by that we can't celebrate these things. But why would God say to Israel, say to us, be careful to protect, be careful to guard this time? Now, biblically, Passover, the night of remembering what God did in Egypt and what uh, the Lord did at the cross, must always be celebrated in connection with first fruits. First fruits could never be celebrated until after the harvest of barley wheat had come in. Listen to Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now you go, I don't even understand what that meant. But God said on this holiday, this appointed time that we're calling first fruits. When the harvest comes in, you take some of the first sheaves of wheat and you bring them into the tabernacle, you bring them into the temple, you wave them before me and offer them up as a first fruits offering. Again, this was intricately connected with Passover. And by the command of God, this holy day was time sensitive. It could not happen before the harvest came in. And that's why God said, guard the spring, protect it. Don't lose sight of what this means. Now, Aviv, this month means tender ears of barley or corn. The name of the month itself meant that the harvest is ready and spring is here. And if God cared so much for the timing of this holy day, if he cared so much for when this took place, 
shouldn't we be concerned about it as well? If he commanded Israel to take such care to guard it and protect it, then should not we also take care to guard and protect the timing of this celebration? Now, we are certainly under grace. We are not under law. Somebody say amen. I am so thankful for that. We are not bound to the law of Moses the way the Jews were. And, and it seems straightforward to me, though, that it should make sense that the death should be recognized before the resurrection. Now, to understand the importance of this commandment about the timing of the celebration of Passover and firstfruits, there are two things that we see. First, God has a plan a calendar by which he has ordained certain dates for his purpose. Again, those appointed times, those anointed days for certain things. Much like we see each year with Purim. Purim is the day when the hand of God is seen shaping nations and altering the course of history for the benefit of his people Israel. Like Wise. Passover and first fruits are days of salvation, of death and resurrection, of God's deliverance. You may not know it, but there's a long list of things that happened on first fruits, going all the way back to Noah's ark. The ark rested on Mount Ararat on first fruits, deliverance from the flood. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea, passing through symbolic death into life, baptism on first fruits. First fruits was the day that the Israelites first ate of the food of the promised land and the manna from heaven stopped falling. The night when Esther went in before the king and Haman's evil plans were, were revealed was the night of first fruits, bringing the Jews salvation and deliverance later at Purim. And most, most important of all, first fruits was the day when Yeshua, Jesus, rose from the dead bringing with him an offering of first fruits of those raised from the dead, he being called the first fruits of many. Matthew 27, 52 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Do you think first fruits is an important day? It's absolutely an important day. And so first, God has a plan which is worked out on certain days of the year. If we don't know when these days occur, we might miss the glimpse of the glorious hand of God shaping history. Second, the Lord hates, hates what's called syncretism. Syncretism is the blending together of unholy and holy things. It's the act of taking paganism and mixing it together with the worship of the one true God. This was the sin the Israelites were perhaps most guilty of, and God hates it. Israel was not simply guilty of leaving the Lord, forsaking him for other gods, but they were often guilty of worshiping other gods right along with the one true God, and even calling false gods Yahweh. Take, for instance, the golden calf. Moses, you may remember the story. He was gone for a few days up on the mountain. He comes back, uh, and then during this time that he was gone, the people demanded a god to worship. 
Aaron takes their golden earrings and he makes an idol. And then he calls it by the name of the one true God, Yahweh. Listen to Exodus 32. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Or in the Hebrew, a feast to Yahweh. He calls this dumb, mute idol made of gold that he made with his own hands by the sacred name of the God of heaven. And the Bible says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, no wonder God was angry at the Israelites. Again, they called this idol by his holy sacred name. But it was also the way that they worshipped this idol that made the Lord so furious. The Bible says they rose up to play. This is a nice way of saying that a lot of them got naked and, we'll say, acted inappropriately. The Levites killed 3,000 at the command of God. God hates syncretism. What many people do not understand is that the false gods the Israelites worshipped always had similar characteristics. They worshipped typically the stars and imagined them to be gods. The golden calf was actually a moon god. In ancient Babylon, he was called Sin. Sin's Babylonian counterpart was a god we've talked about a lot, a false god we've talked about a lot in recent years named Ishtar who is later known as Ashtaroth, uh, Diana, Aphrodite. And the two prominent characteristics of star worship were sex and child sacrifice. <coughs> As we draw close to celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, we find that most churches are planning their celebrations for March 31st. Again, how is it that Resurrection Day, Easter, is in March and Passover in April. But the answer is a simple one. Easter and Resurrection Day are two very separate and distinct holidays. One is of biblical origin and one is of a pagan origin. Another couple of questions for you. Where in Scripture do we find bunny and eggs representing Jesus? and ham as the main dish at a Jewish feast. Nowhere. It's not there. Most Christians understand that Jesus was never pictured by a bunny. He is the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is not the Easter bunny. So where did the bunny come from? Likewise, where did eggs enter the picture? Why do we eat ham? Now, you got to get this. Ham, a pig, is the most unclean animal in Judaism. So how in the world did it become the main dish at a Jewish holiday? Well, it didn't. It didn't. 
Can you imagine Jews eating a Passover celebration with ham instead of lamb? Absolutely not. For that matter, how did the day that Christ rose from the dead come to be known as Easter? Syncretism, the mixture of the holy and the unholy. I said today, folks, we're going to be radical compared to a lot of people. Ishtar, Easter, oyster, among other names, carry the same meaning and origin. The name means bright shining one in the east and represents the planet Venus or the spring dawn. Ishtar or Easter, again, known by many, many other names such as uh, Diana and Nana and Aphrodite, Venus, Ishtar, and all other goddesses associated with Venus were fertility goddesses. This is why the bunny and the eggs became their symbols. What are bunnies known for? Reproducing. What are eggs? The symbol of female fertility. It's not a very big leap. Ishtar was known as the mother of all prostitutes, and in her temples, it was a practice that was continued down into the New Testament times in the temples of Diana and others. Uh, temple prostitution was always the way she was worshipped. And there are many that believe, uh, though they're not everyone agrees, but many believe that in her worship, eggs were dipped in the blood of child sacrifices. All in all, not a name or practice we would ever think should be associated with the worship of the living God. Amen? Now, you'll find disagreement about how far back the connection between bunnies and eggs and Ishtar goes. We know that this goddess in Germany, whose name I forget always how to pronounce, uh, but it's of the same demonic spirit as Ishtar, was present in the 8th century. Other accounts seem to indicate this practice which went back much further in the Middle East, and some even claim that it went all the way back to ancient Babylon and Nimrod. And while we can't be sure exactly how far back it goes, again, show me where bunnies and eggs are in the resurrection story. They're not there. What do they represent? Well, we already covered that. So why do so many people eat ham on Easter? Again, how could the most unclean animal in all of Judaism become the main course on the most important holy day of the year? It doesn't make much sense, does it? Now, legend has it that Ishtar, this Babylonian false goddess of sex, married her son, Tammuz. And Tammuz was killed by a wild boar he was hunting. And in honor of his death, every year in the springtime, believing that he was resurrected, they would eat uh, ham in celebration of Tammuz. And each year the women would mourn the death of Tammuz. And we find Israel falling into this uh, idolatry, into this wicked practice in Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel 8, God is pointing out all of the idol worship that's present in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 8.14, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. 
And so you see, this goes back thousands of years, this syncretism of blending the holy and the unholy. And it's where so many of our traditions and the name Easter come from. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives a warning. And he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, when most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, for examples for us, folks, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Again, Paul says these events, these things that happened, they were recorded for our instruction to teach us. He then goes on to say, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion here. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you can't mix the things of demons and the things of God. And if you do, you're going to run the risk of provoking God to jealousy. In essence, he's saying, avoid idol worship and syncretism at all cost. And I find this passage most compelling as we talk about the mixture of Easter and Passover and first fruits. How can we knowingly blend the pagan practices of a false religion and the things of God into one and expect God to be pleased? How can we call the festival of the Lord by the name of an ancient fertility demon? Now, if you've partaken in traditional Easter celebrations in the past, the principles that Paul lays out regarding food offered to idols applies. He says, if you eat something that was dedicated to an idol and you didn't know it, don't worry about it. 
Don't worry about it. What is food? It's food, right? Food doesn't defile us. Likewise, again, searching for candy or eating ham on a Sunday does not defile us. It's the idol worship itself that defiles us. But Paul says when you know something, when you know something has been offered to demons, he says, be careful, stay away from it. Don't mix it together with holy things. He says if for no other reasons because you might cause somebody else to stumble. Bunnies, eggs, ham, a Sunday morning are nothing more than bunnies, eggs, hams in an ordinary day. Amen? They're not evil in and of themselves. But when offered up in a tradition that celebrates false gods, death, sex, then they become something entirely different because they've been offered up to demons. And so I'm of the personal conviction that the church should avoid these things and make a clear distinction between us and the world, between idol worship and the worship of the one true God. You see, that was what God was trying to teach Israel over and over and over again when he said, don't eat those foods. He said, don't dress like that. He said, don't act like that. Was it the food or the way they dressed or the way they talked that was the issue? No, what he's saying is you're holy. You can't be like everybody else. And this is the way I'm going to teach you. You don't eat unclean foods. You're going to dress and stand out from the crowd. You're going to look different. You're going to talk different. You're going to act different because you are mine and you're supposed to be holy. And so when we can, we should absolutely make a distinction between the church and the world and the things that are offered to demons. Now, we might open up a Pandora's box here because inevitably someone will ask about other holidays and traditions. And many times it can be a lot of great difficulty to figure out where our holiday traditions come from. Some are from Christian origin and then through the years have been mixed with uh, worldly things or pagan things and their true meaning lost through the years. Take, for the example, the tradition of anonymous gift-giving at Christmas. This, Christian, this, this has a Christian origin. It starts with a man named Nicholas, who was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. And he placed coins on a sock, and he threw them in a window, which landed by a fireplace, so that no one would know who had done it. He did this to rescue three sisters from a life of slavery because their father could not pay the dowry price to marry them off, and he was in great debt. And so men were going to take his daughters to pay off his debt, but if they were married off, they wouldn't be able to take them into a life of slavery and prostitution. And so Nicholas said, I don't want anybody to know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to put this in a sock and I'm going to throw it in the window. These and many other parts of Christmas celebrations have a clear Christian origin if we go back far enough. Valentine's Day also has a Christian origin, though not as clear. While not much can be confirmed about the man himself, what we do know is that Valentine was a bishop who preached the gospel and refused to deny Christ even under the threat of death. He was martyred for his faith and traditionally was remembered on February 14th. 
And it is said, through though difficult to prove, that Valentine, def- uh, Valentine defied the order of Emperor Claudius and secretly married couples so that the husbands wouldn't have to go to war. Valentine was put in prison and he gave in prison his testimony. And his prayers were said to heal the jailer's daughter, uh, the jailer's daughter who was suffering from blindness. And on the day of his execution, he left a note that was signed, left her a note that was signed, your Valentine. But somewhere along the way, like so many of our traditions and holidays, it got mixed with remembering this Saint Valentine with the worship of Cupid and many, many pagan things. Finally, there are some holidays and traditions that have a clear and dark origin, such as Halloween. Halloween, or Samhain, is rooted in ancient occult practices, and I teach that it should be avoided completely by Christians, much like the worship of the star gods. Israel sinned by calling an idol Yahweh, and declaring a feast to it. We sin, I believe, if we call a day of the Lord by a Babylonian goddess and risk provoking him to jealousy. I liken it to this if you think the Lord doesn't care about it. Imagine celebrating the anniversary to your current spouse on the anniversary of another spouse. Imagine calling your wife by a past love's name. Not going to go over well, is it? And so why would we think that it wouldn't provoke the Lord to jealousy if we call his holy appointed day by the name of a Babylonian goddess? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? But the real issue we must deal with is not just dates and traditions, but the fact that our nation is filled with idol worship. Even our churches are filled with idol worshipers. What do I mean? Some people would say, what are you talking about? There's no idol worship in the modern world. Again, the two hallmarks of star worship were sex and child sacrifice. Well over 60 million children have passed through the fire or been sacrificed with a knife in our land in the past 50 years. We don't call it an altar anymore. We simply call it an abortion table. We've moved past the idol and simply gone straight to the wicked practices of their worship. We no longer carve idols of human bodies out of stone. We just make graven images with Photoshop. Some time ago I preached, years ago I preached about how Baal was the expression of the perfect man that was worshipped. We worship the perfection of the human form. How do I know this? When top models, women, get paid $100 million a year to parade around in their underwear... I think we got a problem with idol worship. 
We worship the human body and sex and pornography and TV and movies. We worship the human form on billboards and in magazines as we Photoshop every magazine cover and touch up every image to make it perfect. And our young women starve themselves to attain perfection and puke up whatever they eat to stay skinny. Men and women alike work out for hours and inject steroids into their bodies to look good, never mind plastic surgery. Do you think idol worship is alive and well in the United States? Just because it doesn't take place always at a temple in the city, a center of a city, it's alive and well. And it really does, in many ways, take the same forms as it used to. But we tend to not recognize it for what it is. And here's the reality. Most of us struggle with it in one form or another. Men struggle with the images we see while women struggle with the desire to be idolized themselves, to look sexy and be desired, to fit the perceived mold of the perfect weight and look. It's the selfie culture. Look at me and bow down in worship. In addition to these things, the gods of fertility, they were all about prosperity and wealth. And particularly here in America, we worship the God of money. And outside of Wall Street, the symbol of our financial power stands the idol of a bull, the false god, Baal. And so if we stop at simply making sure we get the date right for our celebration of the resurrection, then we have missed the real issue. You see, that's just the outward expression. That's the easy part. The outward is always meant to be an expression of the heart. And the outward, as I talked about early, was always meant by God to teach us the important things. I'm going to give you an easy way to understand it. And so we must learn to separate the things which are holy from the things which are unholy. We must tear down the idol in our lives, the high places and the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge and worship of the true God. And again, for most of us, it's a struggle. Deuteronomy 16 said, Observe, guard the month of Aviv, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. And so guarding the month of Aviv, the Passover, is something so much more than simple celebrations. It's the guarding of the heart, the eyes, the hands, the mind that is at the heart of the matter. It's the guarding of the holy things of the Lord that are important. And so what we're going to do, we as a church, we've, we've done this in years past when this has happened. What we're going to do is make an outward declaration that we will not mix the worship of the one true God with the worship of idols. And so what we're going to do is that... Uh, at the end of April is when we are going to, uh, to observe Resurrection Day. Now, there's going to be a, a community Good Friday in March, uh, Good Friday service in March, um, to keep the unity of the body, which is important. Amen. We're going to invite everybody to attend that. I've been working on the other pastors for years, and they're just not quite there yet. One of, the, one of these days, I'm going to get them there, though. So what we're going to do, we're going to observe Good Friday with everybody else in March. 
to keep the unity because again, every day is a good day to celebrate what God has done. Amen. But then as a body, uh, I think it's April 28th, we are going to come together and observe Resurrection Day then. What is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Somebody tell me. It's our body. It's not these four walls. It's our bodies and our hearts that we must keep holy. Again, in our world, temptation surrounds us. And for most, it's a great struggle to stay away from idol worship. But as we try to honor God by following His calendar, let us also honor Him by repenting of our sin and stopping any idol worship within. Amen? Observe, guard the month of Aviv, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Just stand with me as we close. Worship team, come on back. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow. The one who wore our sin. Oh,